we are often amazed, aren't we, at the grace, providence, and wisdom of God in how he brings about his work of salvation, how he guides events in such a clear, minute, precise way to bring about his will in the salvation of his elect. And it, this is a passage that speaks about that. Even the grief, the sorrow, the pain felt by the Apostle Paul was all cooperating together for the good of those he loves and who love him because he loves them. I've mentioned this at other times through this exposition of the book of Acts. I've called attention to this truth. It is very much a central theme that runs through the book of Acts. That God works all things together. That he is the king of the universe. That he is the, the one who created the spiritual and the material realms by the power of his worth. He is also the one who sustains and governs and all things by his might and by his wisdom. And he is the one who brings about even the smallest of things. Even the most seemingly insignificant of actions to bear in his eternal plan. So that his decrees, the things that he has predestined to happen from the beginning of the world, might come to pass. A few weeks ago we saw how Lydia was brought to her knees, how her heart was opened, and the, all the events that led up to that. We saw how Paul, having strengthened the churches that he established in his first missionary journey, he wanted to go to Asia. He wanted to go further west, but the Holy Spirit forbade him from going. He wanted to go to the place where Lydia was from, originally so he went north and as he was trying to get into Bithynia the Lord again hindered him from going into Bithynia so he goes to Troas and he's probably at this moment planning to go south and the Lord calls upon him by the spirit he gives him a dream in the middle of the night and he tells him no come come into Macedonia a man cries out come to Macedonia and help us and so after considering all these things, Paul, Silas, Timothy, and Luke, they go into Macedonia. And this lady, Lydia, who was not supposed to be there, she's there. And she gets saved. How God guided all the events. And this is another example. We know that uh, as they were preaching the gospel to, to the to the people of Philippi, there was this fortune teller girl following for many days Paul. And at one point, Paul got <laughs> upset with it. And in the name of the Lord, he cast out the demon that was imprisoning this young girl. You might say, what was the Lord doing with that? Well, from that, the masters of that young girl, they conspired and they raised up false allegations against Paul and Silas and they managed to get him beaten and thrown into prison. 
But all of this, as we look at our text today, was again the Lord bringing about his purposes. It was said by one of the church fathers that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And it is very much, although Paul and Silas here are not martyrs, at least yet, it is very much through the sufferings of Paul and Silas that the Lord is bringing about and the salvation of another soul. After the conversion of Lydia, the deliverance of a young fortune teller, Paul and Silas are now doing God's work in the prison, chained. Luke tells us that midnight, at midnight they were singing, praising God. Despite the wounds, despite the pain, despite the scourging, despite the uncomfortable position, both physically and, and circumstantially that they were in, despite their lack of food and care, they were praising God. Why? Because they knew that the sovereign God was in control. And instead of whining, murmuring, or complaining about their circumstances, they are thanking the Lord. And they are praying to him God has never promised the believers God has never promised Christians a charter of well-being in this world he has given us the promise that in the world to come we will be at peace there will be no pain no tears no suffering no sickness but in this life we have no exemption from trouble but the one thing he has promised us the one thing he has given us as a firm promise in this world is that he will be with us in the days of trouble. And that's why Paul and Silas are able to sing. That's why they are able to sing because they know even in that prison cell God is there with them. So Watson once wrote that it is in the, in the taste of the wrath of man, but let me quote it without paraphrasing, when the saints taste most of the wrath of man, it is then that they feel most the love of God. When they taste most the wrath of man, it is then that they feel most the love of God. And then we see this. We see a purpose in all of this. God kind of unveils a little bit of his plan in this record showing us the purpose of all this suffering of all the lashings of all the pain of all the humiliation it was to save this one man this one Macedonian Philippian jailer that was there so today before we draw some applications I want to consider these verses under three headings first the circumstances in which they found themselves Paul and Silas. Secondly, the conversion of the Philippian jailer. And thirdly, the, I, I had to use a C, the corroboration, the evidences, uh, if you like, of the Philippian jailer's conversion. So firstly, the circumstances. The circumstances of his conversion are told to us in verse 26 to verse 29. Again, as Paul and Silas are praying, there is this earthquake that rushes through the, the prison. It shakes the prison to its foundation. 
and the doors are flung open. Perhaps they fell from their hinges and the chains fell off. I don't know much about how these things happen, but it seems highly unusual that for an earthquake to bring about such a result, doesn't it? It seems highly unusual for an earthquake to be so precise, so so precise that only the doors open and only the chains fall off. And this is hardly the first time that the Lord does such a thing with earthquakes. Oftentimes, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, it is not just a, a, the, an earthquake, it's a sign of the presence of God. We read in Exodus 19, verse 18, that Mount Sinai was completely involved in smoke because the Lord descended upon it with fire, in fire. Its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace, and if we hear, we read, the whole mountain quaked greatly. When our Lord Jesus went on the cross, we read that the veil of the temple was torn in two in Matthew 27 from top to bottom, and the earth quaked, and the rocks were split. In Acts, when Peter was, or when Peter and the apostles were in the, in the upper room, they were praying, and the place where they were assembled together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they spoke the word of God with boldness. So the surgical element of this earthquake proves to us that this was not just a matter of chance. It wasn't just, well, it just happened, there was an earthquake. Well, nothing else was affected by the earthquake. What that tells us is that this earthquake was more than just a natural phenomenon. This earthquake was a supernatural event. This time God did not send an angel like he did with Peter when Peter was in prison. No, this time God sent an earthquake to shake the foundations of that prison, to break those chains, to open those doors. Calvin said that the earthquake that shook the Philippian prison was a sign that Paul and Silas's prayers were heard and of God's comforting presence. And of God's comforting presence when we are in danger for defending the gospel of Christ. So then what we see is that they were awakened from sleep, uh, those in the prison. And they saw the prison doors, particularly the Philippian jailer. He, he awakes from sleep. He saw, sees the prison doors being all open. And he, he thinks rightly, they all escaped. I'm doomed. They all escaped. And if you don't think that he is doomed, if you don't understand why he is doomed, you, you don't understand how Roman law worked. In Roman times, in ancient times, if you are a, a guard, all those that are entrusted to you, you're under the, under, they are under your care. And if they escape you, you're liable to suffer the payment that they was required of them. We see this with the Lord Jesus when he rose from the dead. The, the jailers, the Roman, the Roman guards, the Roman uh, soldiers, they were afraid for their lives. Because Jesus, the body of Jesus was under their care and they lost him. There is a codification in the, in the Roman law that we have many documents given to us by, by brought down through history of Roman law. And in Codex Justinianus, in, uh, 
we read that the custody and care of, uh, of imprisoned persons devolves upon the jailer. This is the law of the land on, in the days of Paul and Silas, who must not think that some object and vile dependent will be responsible. If a prisoner should in any way escape, for we desire that he himself shall suffer the same penalty to which the prisoner who escaped is shown to have been liable. That is the law of the land in the days of Paul and Silas. He was a, a jailer. He was probably a retired uh, soldier from the Roman Empire. He was certainly someone who was very zealous, very professional, uh, very mature in the fulfillment of his duties. And when he sees what had just happened, he knows he has failed. He knows he has dropped the, the ball. He, is, he knows he's a failure. So he, he is going to, going to take his life. R.C. Sproul, the late R.C. Sproul, he says that this was not a cowardly attitude of this soldier. It was very much a normal thing to do. It was very much uh, an heroic act of personal sacrifice. According to Roman culture, there is. At that moment, however, something happens. In fact, they did not all escape, did they? As he perhaps picks the sword to thrust it through himself, he hears the voice of Paul. Paul cries out in a loud voice. He shouts, do not yourself no harm, for we are all here. We're all in this prison cell, sir. We haven't gone away. And I might ask, why did they stay in that prison cell? Why is it that those prisoners, perhaps some of them under the, the certainty that they were going to die at some point, why did they not flee? Well, I suppose they were all awestruck from what had just happened. They probably heard Paul and Silas pray and sing. And probably Paul and Silas were not praying and singing in, in Greek or Latin. I don't know which one, which one of the two was the, 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 the language of Philippi. But they probably were singing psalms in Hebrew. So they're listening to these people singing at midnight, very unusually. And then this weird earthquake, surgical earthquake comes in and breaks these things. I don't know about you, but if I was one of those prisoners, I, would, I wouldn't want to go anywhere away from them. Something, these people have some kind of power, they would have thought. So they all stayed. The doors are gone, but they don't want to go anywhere. So why? Why would they have stood? I think this probably confirms the supernatural character of the event. They might have, might have been prevented by God from doing this as well. It is possible. They were impressed by this event. And you see then uh, what happens. The jailer goes in. And you can almost imagine him with a light in and starting to count the heads. He probably knew the, the head count that he had the, the previous uh, as he went to sleep. He started at one, two, three. They're all here. None of them fled. None of them went away. None of them took the chance to go. All the prisoners still there. No one took advantage of this providential earthquake to flee.
the Roman official had certainly been awestruck by the supernatural nature of this opening of the prison doors. And then we read. We read that he cried out, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? You see, the earthquake, that earthquake that shook those prison doors, it shook much more than the prison doors and those chains, didn't it? It shook the heart and the very core of that jailer. He shook him to his knees and he melted his hardened heart. And he was pleading, what must I do to be saved? Some think that maybe here he's not talking about uh, spiritual salvation. I, I beg to differ. I think he understood. I think he knew, he heard uh, Philippi, although a great Roman colony, was not that big of a city that he wouldn't have known about these two men that have been preaching about salvation uh, around the city. He knew that these men had a message that they spoke about sins and they spoke about a judge and they spoke about a holy God who will judge sins and he now understands by this providential uh, event that these men are actually the, the real deal. What must I do to be saved, they ask. he asked them. What must I do to be saved? And then the voice comes. Paul says to him, believe in the Lord Jesus, verse 31, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. I think Paul probably said more than this at this moment. As is often the case with Luke, he summarizes. He is not, Luke is not interested in giving the, the whole word-by-word uh, word recollection. Luke, very often in his, in his recollection, record of the, the sermons and the events that led up, uh, that, that construct what the book of Acts is, he is more concerned about giving the main ideas. I believe that Paul perhaps has uh, said a lot more. And in fact, there is a, a, a statement here that, he, that says that uh, they spoke the word of the Lord to him. But this is the gist. This is what Luke, under the inspiration of the Spirit, wants us to know about salvation. What is it that man must do to be saved? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the main point. That is the only point that Luke wants us to know under the inspiration of the Spirit. That is the way of salvation. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. So what is it to believe? What is it? What does it mean to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ? Is it just an intellectual belief? Is it just a, a, an ascent of the, of the head? A, a mere knowledge belief? No. Paul is not saying that to be saved it is sufficient to believe in the historicity of Jesus. Paul is not saying that to be saved it is mere uh, it's, it is sufficient just to believe that Jesus was a real person who lived 2,000 years ago. That is not sufficient. 
In fact, James says, the brother of our Lord says that even the demons believe and they shudder and they tremble. So belief merely of intellectual assent to a true assertion or proposition is not enough to save you. The belief being spoken about here is what the reformers refer to as fiducia. F-I-D-U-C-I-A. Fiducia is a belief that commands our trust, that commands our rest, our reliance upon the Lord Jesus Christ. It is more than just intellectual assent. It is a trust in the sufficiency and the efficiency of the work of Christ. It is to confess with your mouth that the Lord Jesus is the Savior. To believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead. That is what is being spoken of here. And believing here is very much connected to, the, to repentance as well. Thomas Watson used to say that uh, faith and repentance are the two wings on which we fly to heaven. Faith and repentance go together. Fa repentance is very much a work of faith as well. It is because we believe that He is willing and able to forgive our sins that we repent of our sins, that we come and we confess our sins in His presence. Believing and repenting in truth do not exist apart from one another. Faith is always penitent and repentance must always be given in faith. And in this sense, this man, Cornelius, uh, just called him Cornelius, this Philippian jailer, he is very much demonstrating a repentant attitude in his life. In the case of the Philippian jailer, although it is not easy to reconstruct all the events uh, of the brevity, because of the brevity of the account that Luke gives us, we know that he is indeed demonstrating faith and repenting. And those are the evidences of his salvation. Quickly, just the three points that I, that I want to bring here is that, he, that we have three evidences of his salvation. First of all, we see Christian love. Until this moment, this jailer, he was completely ignorant unbothered with, with the man in his prison. He was fulfilling his duties. He was insensitive to the suffering of, of Paul and Silas. He does not seem to have shown any kind of pity at the suffering of his prisoners. But at this moment, something changed, didn't it? He, he starts taking care of him. He, he seems to show a sincere concern for the welfare of his fellow neighbor, in particular of his brothers and sisters in Christ. In prison himself, and then in his home, he washed the wounds of Paul and Silas, and he fed them. The second evidence is the ordinances. He wanted to be baptized. He confessed the Lord Jesus with his, with his mouth and, in his, and believed in his heart, and then he wanted to put that seal of, of going through the ordinance of baptism. And the third evidence of his conversion is his rejoicing. 
Not only his conversion, but the conversion of his household. His whole household. And I'm not going to go into the, to the same thing that we spoke a few weeks ago about households and who, what is it that, uh, what it is meant here by household. But we know that his family believed as well and that his family rejoiced as well and that his family then was baptized as well. So there is no child baptism in Acts 16 as a whole. But they rejoiced. A third evidence of salvation, that's what I want to, us to know, is the joy of the Lord being put in our hearts. The joy of salvation. There is, brothers and sisters, no greater joy than to be saved. And if you're not joyful, it's because you don't understand the, the salvation that God has given you. We should, out of all people in this world, be the most joyful. So much so that people around us might look and say, why are you so joyful when everything is going so wrong in your life and in your circumstances? Well, because I know where I'm going. I know in whom I have believed. I know who, what, what the end is going to bring. I know that He is good. He is good not only when I'm going through wealth and, and, and peace. He is good to me as well when I'm going through sorrow and pain. God is good. And that should bring joy to us. To know that this God loves us and is with us. This man, the Philippian jailer, hours earlier, he was a destitute wretch bound to go to hell. Hours earlier, he was experiencing the worst day of his life as well. He, he thought that he was going to be put to death so he just wanted to take his life away but it, but now he understands that actually it wasn't the worst day of his life was it he was having the worst moment of his life but actually it was the best day of his life when you look at what happened so the worst moment seemingly outside of providence outside of looking it through the lenses of providence, the worst moment of his life was actually the most happy and blessed moment of his earthly life up until then, and probably, probably until glory. It was the moment that he was saved. This is the God that we believe in. That out of the most desperate, terrible, dark moments of our lives, he brings about the most joy. So what can we learn from this passage? As I said in the beginning, we learned that God is in control. That God is providentially bringing about everything for the good of the God, or for the expansion of the kingdom, for the, the, the proclamation of his gospel, for the good of his elect. That is it. If you don't take anything else from today, this is the message. That we should all preach to ourselves day in and day out, morning and evening. That God is good. That God is, is righteous. That God does not make mistakes. That God knows better. It is often God's way, isn't it? It is often God's way to bring us through darkest nights. Through dark nights. To cause us to go through tempests and, and storms in the sea of life. It is often God's way to bring us to a closer, more, more, lo more loving place. 
All these events happening in, in the book of Acts, the lashings, the, the, the whipping of Paul and Silas. When you look at it, and when you take a step back and you look at it from the, the perspective of, of the end time, you realize that all these seemingly unconnected events, a dream back in Troas, a, 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 a door that closed when they were trying to get into Asia, a, a, the fact that they couldn't get into Bithynia, all of these seemingly unconnected elements, the Lord in his wisdom and in his sovereignty brings all of it perfectly as threads to to form a beautiful tapestry of his salvation and of his will for his glory. It is often the way that the Lord works. But it's nonetheless the way that we are brought closer to God. Often the Lord lets uh, Peter go into jail. The day before he was going to be put to death before the Lord comes in and delivers him. Didn't the Lord allow Mordecai to build that, that uh, not Mordecai, to allow Haman to build the gallows and to, to de- for it to go almost until the day that was set for Mordecai to be hanged in those gallows before the Lord came in and delivered. That's how the Lord works. That's how the Lord works. Let us remind ourselves of that. Let us not grow despondent, disheartened. Let us not grumble or murmur at the providences of God. Let us trust that He is good. He's good when we are healthy. He's good when we are sick. He's good when we are, are abounding in, in, the, in the riches of this world. He's good when we have nothing to our name. He's good in the day of our wedding, as someone said. And He's good in the day of our death. He is good. I do want to say something, and I'll have to say it rather quickly, but about salvation. Because this is a passage about the gospel. What must I do to be saved? The greatest question that any of us can ask. Have you asked yourself this question? Have you asked yourself this question? What must I do to be saved? This is the greatest, most fundamental, most significant question that any person in this world any son or daughter of Adam can ask what must I do to be saved and it is the question that this the, the, the devil and the uses all his artifices all his conjuring up and in, in inventing of distractions to keep us from asking have you asked yourself what must I do to be saved have you ever asked this question have you ever received the answer to this question the Lord the spirit gave this word to Paul and how thankful I am that in one sentence he gives us the way of salvation what must I do to be saved glad you asked Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And you will be saved. You will be saved. That is the way of salvation. Believe, not with uh, uh, just mental assent. Not just, oh, yeah, I, I kind of believe that there was a, a man, a Jewish man 2,000 years ago called Jesus who lived in Galilee, who had many disciples, who by all accounts, and maybe I even believe that he did some miracles. I believe in all of that. 
No, believe. Do you trust? Trust and rest upon the righteousness of Christ. That is the point. Well, with what will you stand before the presence of God when the day comes? In which clothes will you be dressed on? Will you be dressed in your filthy rags of your own righteousness? Or will you, will you come into the presence of God dressed in the righteousness of Christ? Trusting in His perfect obedience. That is the question that is before us. Because if you come before the presence of God with your own righteousness, you will not stand. Forget who, this, the name of, the, uh, of this Greek story, the, the, the guy that went up into, was trying to reach the sun in, in wax in wings, and as he gets up there, the, the wings melt. That is what you're trying to do. If you're trying to get into the presence of God in your own righteousness, your righteousness are those wax wings. The, the heat of the glorious righteousness and holiness of God will melt those wings as soon as you leave the floor. You won't even get close to the presence of God. You will not be able to sail the, the sea to heaven in this paper boat that you've made. You need to go in the wings of Christ's righteousness. You need to enter the vessel of Christ's life and death for you. I was reading something. I didn't write down who it was. When I, when I put it here, are you trusting your own duties? Your own religious observance? You come to church on a Sunday, by the way, of course I'm going to heaven. He said, duties may be good crutches to go upon, but they are bad Christ to lean upon. Let me read that again. Duties, what you do as a Christian, or if you believe to be a Christian, may be good crutches to go upon, but they are really bad Christs to lean upon. Could my tears forever flow, says the hymn writer. Could my zeal no respite known, all for sin could not atone. Thou must save, and thou alone. And this author... Uh, he says something very similar. He says, We do not sail to glory in the salt sea of our own tears, but we sail to glory in the Red Sea of the Redeemer's blood. That is the way of salvation. Every single human being that desires to be saved, he must believe. He must trust, he must rely, and he must rest on the righteousness of Christ. There is no other way, there is no other name given under heaven for which by man must be saved. It is Christ Jesus and Jesus alone. And I, might I ask you, has this happened to you? If it hasn't, this is the day. Today is the day of salvation. It doesn't matter how old you are, how young you are. It doesn't matter what sins you've committed, what sins you haven't committed. 
That is the good thing about being a Christian minister, minister of the gospel. I don't need a list of your sins in order to say, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and he will forgive and pardon all of those sins. No matter how vile or how seemingly clean they are, he will forgive. He will find you. He will save you. And for us believers, what does this mean? We've already been saved. Meditate upon that salvation. Think many times a day of the grace that God has given you. Of the great mercy that he has bestowed on you. You know, Lord Jesus found uh, found the lost uh, spoke about the joy of sowing and reaping. He spoke about the joy of founding a lost sheep. And he's found lost sheep. He's found you. Where did the Lord Jesus find you? Where did the Lord Jesus find you? Were you in a prison cell? Probably not. But where did the Lord Jesus find you? Cast your mind back. Think about that grace that he has given you. Where did he find you? Some of your... your with a testimony of salvation I've heard before are beautiful in the providence of God someone passing down the street a, a stolen Bible someone said that brought him to Christ all of those testimonies of salvation are brilliant they are just as magnificent as this Philippian jailer why wouldn't you rejoice in the same way why wouldn't you rejoice in the same way? Where has the Lord Jesus found you? Did he find you upon the tree like he found Zacchaeus? Did he find you in the desert like he found the Philippian, uh, the, not the Philippian, the, Philip found the eunuch? Where did the Lord Jesus found you? find you? Which earthquake happened in your life? That not only shaked the foundations of what surrounded you, but shook and melted and rent those rocks, that rocky heart, to be open. Meditate upon that. Think about that. And let that propel you to serve the Lord more and better. Let's sing.